Riley, when you get back in your editing of this, you're going to hate that I do this right now. You know, I think I could use some more Cheez-Its. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Res. I'm Riley and I'm here with my friend Daniel. Hi guys. And today, we actually don't have any follow-up to jump into, so we're going to go straight ahead with our episode on the novel Leviathan Wakes. Yeah. And you want to go ahead and tell us about Leviathan Wakes a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, Leviathan Wakes is a very hefty book. I'll let you hear it, listeners. That was the book. Um, written by James S.A. Corey, which is actually a duo of authors named Daniel Abram and Ty Frank. They're uh, both New Mexican writers. Um, who have worked together on things in the past. Uh, they've also worked with George R.R. R. Martin on some of his books and short stories. Their aim when they first wrote Leviathan Wakes was actually not to write a novel, but they actually wanted to create a board game about humanity's first steps into the void of space. Huh. And so... Whenever the board game didn't end up panning out, Leviathan Wakes dropped out. And it's this sweeping epic about Earth, Mars, the asteroid belt, something more mysterious perhaps, and all of the crazy things that happen after there's no single planet that everybody's around after there's billions of miles of open, deadly space between the different powers, between people, and whatever else awaits. Um, the story starts out at an indeterminate date. It's perhaps a couple hundred years from now in the future. So think, uh, think kind of... Maybe not as technologically advanced as Halo, but a similar distance into the future. Um, and there are two major superpowers in the solar system. There's Earth and there's Mars. And there's the... Uh, how can I say this? Um, there's the others that are kind of around them in the asteroid belt, in the Jovian system and on scattered moons throughout the solar system. It's kind of like a third world thing. Exactly. Now, up until this point, Earth and Mars were doing pretty good. They at least had a peaceful coexistence, even though they're technically kind of like the, the, the America of today and the USSR of 20 years ago or whatever, 30 years ago. They're, they're superpowers, nukes, always at the ready, but they're at least peaceful. But what ends up happening is their exploitation of the asteroid belt and of the Jovian system reaches a tipping point and all hell breaks loose and the system descends into chaos. And that's where you get dropped off with 
the two major characters of the book, James Holden and, oh my God. Joe Miller. Joe, Mil- Joe Miller? Is it? Yeah. Joe Miller. <laughs> I forgot to it's write. Joe. I forgot to write down Joe Miller. I, I wrote down James Holden, uh, but not Joe Miller. And Leviathan Wakes is the story about how these two characters fit into the chaos that comes out of a system that's that's now erupted into war. And uh, what was really cool about it is that you get these characters, but in the but in the universe you still get this sweeping <laughs> expanse of a universe. Oh my god. I didn't even mean to do that. Uh, and after Leviathan Wakes, there are seven more books. This keeps going and going and going, and it never stops. So it's not done yet? Not done yet. They have oh, wow. They have released one book every year since 2011. Wow. Uh, and perhaps because of this never-ending fount of content... The TV channel Sci-Fi has adapted The Expanse into The Expanse, the TV show that roughly follows the same story. So so go. the novel series is called The Expanse? It, I believe that it was called The Expanse before the TV show came out, but it definitely okay. is referred to as The Expanse afterwards. Gotcha. And so The Expanse follows two characters gives you a giant world goes on forever and can be ex- and can be experienced either through their book series or through their television series um something interesting about the tv series like you mentioned sci-fi picked it up mm-hmm. for the first i think three seasons mm-hmm. it may have been two seasons i don't remember uh but then they canceled the show mm-hmm. and Jeff Bezos was a fan of the show, so he actually greenlit it to become an Amazon video original series. So he basically paid for out of his own pocket the show to continue because he wanted to see what was going to happen. So at least we haven't heard our opinions about the show, but at least we we know what Jeff Bezos' opinion is. I haven't asked him what he would rate it on the Daniel scale, but it's safe to say it's probably pretty high. That's that's good. We need we need more billion, eccentric billionaires to throw their money at sci-fi products to save them. Maybe he can go back and get Firefly. My take on it is it's probably just some kind of weird war gaming simulation that he's doing between his Blue Origin company and Elon Musk's spacex oh okay i get you so he wants to he wants to figure out a little bit ahead of the game what he should be thinking about well you know what i'm thinking about what i'm thinking about what was my big takeaway from this and i want to see if it was yours too because as i was saying in kind of the little summary Leviathan Wakes doesn't just set up two characters and it doesn't even just set up two stories, but it really sets up a universe. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things that stuck out to me was the, the Belterlang 
and okay. and other linguistic pieces to the book. Okay, so by Belterlang, you mean the language spoken by those people that are not living on Earth or Mars? Yes. It's, uh, there's actually kind of a, there's, there's a bit of a Wikipedia hole you can go down for that. Um, mm. But the general idea is that one of the things that they were very particular about, and I think it shows from the fact that, or f- knowing that it was trying to be a board game before, is mm-hmm. that they did think about how people would interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And so Belterlang is, is I think even, is it the first line in the Miller chapter? Yeah. the he's He's talking to... In chapter two, that's when you're introduced to Miller. He's he's talking to a belter, and you get just hammered with this Creole, like, kind of nonsense, but you kind of get it, because it's this, mm-hmm. like, amalgamation of every language that any Earther could have spoken, but was now stuck on a rock with millions of other people who spoke completely different languages. Right, so it's just space Esperanto. <laughs> space Esperanto, but with more chaos. So how how prevalent was was these linguistic things to you when you were reading the book? So okay, so your biggest takeaway from the book was the Belter language? Not necessarily the biggest, but it was definitely one of the very first things that I noticed was that uh Belterlang in your face, the Martians sound like Texans, the mm. Belters have like a an unofficial sign language. That's just mm-hmm. that's just emerged from the fact that they used to or not used to, but they they would have to communicate with their hands all the time, but it was still like mm-hmm. uh, like common language. And yeah. It was details that I noticed, and I didn't know if those were even things that were interesting to you or or if they added anything to the book for you. I was just curious. I thought the level of detail in the book was good in in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. I think the language is a nice touch. Like it's pretty realistic. I think to say that probably people who are living in the asteroid belt are going to talk a little differently than people on Earth uh, or people on Mars, for that matter. Mm-hmm. So I like the language. I had already watched the first two seasons of the Expanse TV show before having read this book, mm-hmm. so I was kind of exposed to it. Like I was gotcha. expecting to hear that language in the book and kind of see how it mapped. Um, and I think in actually the TV series, it's a little more comprehensible in most places. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, just cause you don't have time to like reread things on TV like you do in a book. Yeah. Um, did they, did they have as much like a, a Russian, Chinese, Spanish loan words in the show? Or was it a lot like kind of English, but not? No, there were definitely lots of loan words, but I I would say they were the more common loan words that you cool. already probably understand. So, have you not watched the show on TV at all? I guess it is important. I I watched the very first episode like three years ago or something. Oh, okay. And that was enough to tell me that hey, this is really interesting, but I didn't mm. ever make the time to finish it. And then I actually by chance noticed leviathan wake sitting in barnes and noble and i was like Mm -hmm. you know i need to keep reading things 
I haven't. I I have no idea where this series is going to go. So let's let's try it. And I it was, it was like ten bucks, even though it's huge. And right. It, uh, that's that's where I started was just with Leviathan Wakes. So it's kind of a different experience than the TV show. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I, so then this was your first time experiencing the plot of The Expanse. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Oh, okay. I, I actually didn't realize that you had already seen the first two seasons before this. I had, I had interpreted the last episode as you hadn't seen it at all, so... Oh, that, yeah. that probably does color you a little bit too. Like it, it changes how you see it, right? Uh, it does, but in kind of a weird way. Yeah. Throughout the book, as I was reading, I was constantly confused of if this <laughs> is what actually had happened in the show or not. Um, <laughs> like there were many, many places, and I, I took a lot of notes where, to the effect of like, did this really happen in the TV show? Like this is insane. Did this actually happen? <laughs> and it, like why can i not remember something this crazy happening and i went back and watched a recap of of season one of the expanse and was like yeah this all actually seemed to have happened in the show nice um so my the fact that i watched the tv show did i think uh primarily just made me fear for early onset alzheimer's <laughs> oh man that's that's sad no you're doing great your, your brain's there. You got this. I got it. <laughs> all of the all of the beats, I think, I, I remembered most of. Like, the general structure of what the story was trying to say. But a lot of the specifics of how that was implemented in the plot were... Uh, they were new to me mm-hmm. again. And there were some things in the TV show that were completely left out of the book as well which i thought was interesting i i want to put a pin in that and and hopefully loop back around if we don't then sorry listener but um yeah no we will because there was there was even stuff from the very first episode that within like 10 chapters of the book i was like oh this is never happening like this is not happening in this episode (laughs) um yeah and i'm in caliban's war which is the second book now and Mm -hmm. i'm like okay i see they did some weaving here to make it make mm-hmm. more sense. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I figured they'd do as much. So, what are your feelings about this book? How, how did... Did you like it? Did you not like it? Where do you land? Uh, hmm. So, I, I think I've come to realize about myself that I'm incredibly critical of things that take a lot of my time uh-huh. in terms of entertainment. Yeah. So namely books and video games. Uh-huh. Um, I think movies, I can tolerate more like average or even laughably bla- bad movies because they only take at most like two hours of my life. Yeah. And they're normally at the end of the day when I'm already tired and not looking to do anything. Yeah. But a book like this one, it is like a 20 hour investment. So I have already noticed, I think, that my bar is a little bit higher for things like books and games and TV even. And this particular that be- this particular book is, uh, what was it, almost 600 pages. Like, it's, it's gigantic. Okay. So I can, okay. I can see where that would fit in with your system. I actually have no idea how many pages this book is, but we'll get to that. Okay, sorry. Um, 
yeah, so so with that being said, I think that the I think Leviathan Wakes is basically completely average sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, it does not really in any ways like surprise me or like delight me beyond I would say half of the sci-fi books I've ever written. It also does not disappoint me in any major ways mm-hmm. like Ring World, let's say. <laughs> An awful book. Never read it. But but it's Halo. Woo-hoo. Uh, it's horrible. Um, yeah, so I think that the there were lots of things in the book that I thought were really cool and interesting and fun. And, like, it's an easy read. You can just fly through it. I, I actually haven't looked, but I think it maybe only took me 14 or 15 hours to read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that. It doesn't take that long. Gotcha. Um, and I found myself in some points even just, like, sp- not speed reading, but really scanning pages because a lot of what's in the page is unnecessary to read. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think from a plot perspective, it's cool. It's interesting. It's a good setting. Mm-hmm. It's one that not a lot of uh, sci-fi, at least contemporary sci-fi, seems to be too interested in, which is, like, the the early cradle of humanity and the solar system. Mm-hmm. Like, before we've become galactic gods or or, <laughs> uh, or how we've avoided the seemingly inevitable like dystopian societies that come up in most sci-fi uh films Mm -hmm. or books so i like that it's just kind of like humanity set in a little bit in the future Mm -hmm. with all of the problems that humanity still has today but adapted into this new future scenario the thing that detracts for me mostly is like I have a very high bar, I think, for the quality of writing in a book. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that this book met that bar. Um, Interesting. I I think that this isn't this. I don't think that this is too spoilery. Um, but did you prefer one character's perspective more than the other? Mm, I think I see why you're you're saying maybe this is spoilery or not. Yeah. Um, or did you even did you even think about there being a difference between those perspectives like the writing and the style and the quality so the writing and the style and the quality and and i would be interested to know if the two authors that wrote this book if one of them was writing the holden chapters and the other one was writing the miller chapters Mm -hmm. that would make a lot of sense it, um, that is in fact the case. Okay. So, did, so you guessed that kind of ahead of time, like while you were reading it as well. Yeah, that makes kind of, that makes some sense to me. Uh, I found I think that the the tone was obviously different mm-hmm. from character to character, even though the events were carried over. Like it wasn't there was never after a certain point in the novel. Um, a disjointed transition between characters Mm -hmm. like chapter to chapter it was always something that happened to this person influences what's happening to this next person and back and forth yeah which i thought was good like that that's a fine way to do it um the thing i think that like it was different things i think that annoyed me about either style yeah gotcha so I think a general, there was like a general, um, 
thing throughout this book that I don't like when books do, which is it was kind of telling you the way to interpret the book. Hmm. Like it was trying to make a literary or poetic point in some places, but then it would use the character's perspective, like the character's own inner monologue to tell you how to think about that more literary point, which is very frustrating to me. Hmm. Um, so I saw that a lot in this book and I wish there was less of it. To explain to the listeners real quick, um, I did mention that there were two perspectives at the beginning, and we just were talking about how uh, they're um, they're written by both of the authors. Like one author took one uh, took Holden's chapters, and the other one took Miller's chapters. the The perspective is third person limited, so you you might be introduced to a character in one perspective, and then this happens several times in the book. You'll get to the other perspective, and they're just referred to as the guy who was standing next to Holden or whatever. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it's like, so it is, it is very, very much separate brains. And that's kind of, I think what you're referring to a little bit, right? Riley is that the, whatever kind of point the author is trying to make or, or idea they're trying to explore. It's, it's all inner monologues and that could frustrate you sometimes. I don't even have a problem with inner monologues and the the whole thing of like one character not knowing who somebody is so they're not being referred to like I get it that's a cute thing to do they did it a little too much it's exhausting as a reader you already know who they are so quit doing that (laughs) Um, but the the thing that annoys me isn't so much they're they've got inner monologues because that's what you do in third person limited like you're saying Mm -hmm. you have to you're the character is thinking through things yeah I think it was the fact that the that the monologue um, like they would think something that seems almost poetic like they would think about an irony about the situation that they're in Mm -hmm. and then there would just on the end of that little paragraph explaining the character thinking like oh my gosh this is so Uh, stressful or difficult for me to rationalize about this thing because I was just saying to do the opposite even though I think this is the right thing to do then there would be a thing at the end like oh how ironic (laughs) or oh this is almost poetic or you know stuff like that it's like don't say that in a book you might think it in real life but I have a real problem with books that try to to adapt like a real life level of fidelity of certain things because you're never going to do that that's not what books are for Gotcha. I I don't I'm not gonna put you on the spot for, for what those moments were because I didn't necessarily perceive those. Um, but if if maybe like after the break or something or, or, or later we might be able to talk through what those were because I'd like to see what that perspective is. because um, mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily feel that as much. Um, I did feel them talking to themselves a lot about various things. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily see the author or not see but like metaphorically see the author turn to the camera and wink necessarily Mm -hmm. is it is it part of like an immersion breaking is it is like an immersion breaking thing that they would because they would call it out after they go through their thoughts it's uh, let me let me pull up an example for you yeah sure sure um And I think this will speak better than I can about what I mean. Uh, 
that uh, let me just read through this to see how much I have to actually read. Because there were there were definitely um, sometimes you could see the monologue go for a page or two. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so you're trying to figure out like does this actually matter? Can I just get to the chase? Right here here you go. Here's a good example. So this is from. I think like chapter 16 or something. It's a it's a Miller chapter. And it's not really spoilery at all. No, there's nothing spoilery about it. So, this there's a conversation between two people, Miller and somebody named Hassini. And Miller says, "What time is it?" Miller asked. "Late." The word had a depth to it. Late. It was late. All the chances to make things right had somehow passed him. The system was at war and no one was even sure why. Miller himself was turning 50 years old the next June. It was late. Late to start again. Late to realize how many years he'd spent running down the wrong road. That is an example of something that you need to show me, not tell me. Hmm. Um, like, I, I don't like the fact that they do this in a lot of places in the book where it's something that I think you would have conveyed differently in a different medium like in in a movie Mm -hmm. nobody would be able to say that right you you would have to feel that and if i already don't feel that from the characterization of miller then don't tell me it like there are much better books i feel like where the person the things that somebody is doing and the things that they are thinking do not have to be the statements of theme to make you understand the theme. Mm, okay. So to me, it's just like lazy writing. It's like writing for a lazy reader mm-hmm. because you're just telling somebody what to think about how somebody feels rather than letting them like read through and by the end of every Miller chapter go, oh my gosh, I have so much regret on behalf of this character. They're mm-hmm. just telling you like Miller is regretful and it's deep and it's poetic and it's, you know, it's very powerful regret, isn't it? Yeah. So if there had been some way or if they had found the time in the 600 pages um, to to show situations where his past comes back or or his past like shows itself and shows what had happened that made him regretful, that would have been better. Is it, is it about like putting him in more situations or, or giving him more, uh, it might even just be artifacts to like reconnect with or something. Yeah, you could, you could opt for doing it that way of characterizing somebody by explaining more about their past. You could also opt for it by, I think, actually characterizing themselves in that moment. So rather than explaining his thoughts, like show, tell me what he is doing, mm-hmm. you know, whenever, whenever Hassini says late, mm-hmm. make a Miller kind of like, make his posture slump a little bit, make his words start to drag a little more, make him look off into the distance, like tell me these things are happening. So that way I can, I can read that that exchange had some kind of effect on him and, and, you know, interpret that effect rather than saying like, late oh here's all the things that that means to miller Mm -hmm. yeah i i will say that we and we can't i don't think that we can talk about this event now 
but there was, I think for both Miller and Holden, at least within the context of the story, they did at Mm -hmm. least do things like do hooks that the authors could refer back to later in reference to their character. Um, I guess for, for Holden, it's not, this isn't super spoilery really in the grand scheme of things, but after the Canterbury incident Mm -hmm. and he, and he broadcasts his findings to the, to the system that, that comes back like, all the time and it and it feels at least like something that did actually happen so there are there are instances in the book like that you point out where there these people are like existing in the world and they don't do a great job of of giving you those hooks to show that they're real feelings and real pasts but at least within the context of the story they they did make an attempt to to set up people's characters through action yep and i think that's a much better like that's a good example of how they could have approached things because whenever you're reading a book especially if you're reading in third person limited and you're attached to a certain character you're empathizing with that character as you're reading Mm -hmm. like you're in their shoes and looking at the world through their eyes so if other characters are challenging them about things you can make the reader feel that regret or feel that like, oh my God, why did I make that decision? Yeah. Without telling them that the character feels that way. Right, right. So that's what I mean, I guess, whenever I say there's some kind of lazy writing mm-hmm. throughout the book. I think that uh, my perception going through the book is that I do think that now that you put a face to it, I can see a lot of those happening. I just feel like it wasn't like every instance. I think that there were some that were handled way better than others. Yeah, I definitely agree. And if you're talking about like having to write one of these a year and it's just, it sounds like it's something that these two guys do more for fun than for like creating great literary works, then that's a great context to understand this in. Uh, because to do what I'm suggesting, I think takes uh, quite a bit more time. Yeah, it's this feels kind of like classic sci-fi literature a little bit, um, as far as like the time put into it. Now, don't get me wrong, the the old like uh, sci-fi like magazines, journals, whatever, um, mm-hmm. back in the day where they would where they would like write a short story in like a week or whatever, and then publish it those produced real gems and maybe Leviathan wakes isn't a real gem, but it does have that kind of feel, you know, like because they pump through 600 page novels every year. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit, it might be a little bit faster and raw and rougher for the reader who gets yeah. to it. Yeah. And that's why I say like, it's easier to read. It's a little bit more tropey. It's a little bit more classic space sci-fi. Yeah. It's very much just in my mind average sci-fi which is a good thing if you like sci-fi yeah yeah i think that's that's a really important insight i think that that could help somebody decide if it's worth their time investment (laughs) that's that's really good um yeah and it's one of those like it's it's a 600 page book i'm sure that probably the writing gets a little better as the series goes on because that tends to happen mm-hmm. when you settle into to a series into a world. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's a long road, 
And if you're not a fast reader, yeah, then you might enjoy the TV show more. Yeah. Um, quick side uh, point to that, uh, because I did do a little bit of look up on this. The third book, Abaddon's Gate, seems mm-hmm. to be the high point of the series as far as like reviews and awards and things go. So okay. that's kind of what I'm counting on. I, I obviously haven't read it yet, but things that, that might not be as cleanly done in Leviathan Wakes and Caliban's War, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking forward to the Empire Strikes Back of the series. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so keep that in mind if you're interested in maybe taking a dive into the universe. So Definitely. I do want to ask about uh, some other things that you you might have taken issue with. With gravity, you have um, you have uh, you had a field day, I guess you could say, with the realism of that movie. We didn't even scratch the surface. <laughs> you started the field day. Maybe you only okay. got an hour into it. So with Leviathan Wakes, there are some aspects of the of the storytelling and of the universe building that mm-hmm. are at least at the surface meant to be like hard sci-fi. There are things, and I'm putting quotes around that. Um, for example, transportation, although it happens with like another magical drive, it's still not like faster than light necessarily. Yep. Um, so they still have like forces applied to you as you're applying thrust to your ship. They've got, uh, they've got very, very, um, hard sci-fi concepts of how like air is managed and, uh, how spaces are managed on space stations and ships and those kinds of things. Did you feel like they did a good job with some of those details? Like, did they get them right? And did and if they didn't get them right, did it do the same thing to you that Gravity did, where it was at times a little bit distracting to have things not quite line up with with reality? Hmm. So I actually will disagree. I don't think this book is hard sci-fi. Yeah, and that's why I put quotes around it because the authors themselves also don't put it that way. Um, I just more mean that there are people who who point to it as hard sci-fi and i feel like this could be an opportunity to to discuss why that isn't the case sure um just for anybody who's not aware of the distinction there's kind of two camps of sci-fi that are really more of a spectrum there's one end that's called hard sci-fi and then another end that's called like just soft sci-fi and basically the harder the sci-fi gets the harder uh or the, or the more detailed any explanation of the existence of any technology is as well as the more quote-unquote realistic the confines of people's actions are within the science fiction world to those new physical laws Mm -hmm. um, based around the technologies or the whatever so star wars is incredibly soft sci-fi yeah planes like the the fighters are treated like airplanes they've got laser swords that nobody knows how they works like it but it doesn't matter yeah like the explanations of those things don't matter whereas something a little bit more on the hard sci-fi uh side of things would be like the martian for example where it's very much a book that's in the numbers about 
is it actually possible for you to grow potatoes in a habitat that's only got this much air and this much soil and what did you have to like how much water do you have to use every day on them etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah Dude. so go ahead yeah so hard sci-fi in summary is sci-fi that is very much trying to be bound by physical law and soft sci-fi is more using science fiction elements as literary devices And Leviathan Wakes is, it has things that people might be able to point to as being like, oh, look, they're paying attention to the details, but it's definitely something that will stop the explanations for things before going too deep. It just helps to, they're just trying to more do like a, a world building rather than like a, like a world explaining. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it though all of the technology that they dive into, they only do it to the level that somebody already in the universe would pretty much know about off the back of their hand. Mm -hmm. Um, They never like dive into very detailed explanations of how any of the technology works. It's just more, I think to like phrases are used in passing or technologies are referenced in passing or, or concepts about like Daniel saying recycling air Mm -hmm. are mentioned I think more because they put you in the mindset of somebody living in this universe rather than to say like air is recycled in this way and therefore it affects people under these conditions, blah, blah, blah. Like the story happens the way it's going to happen. And those things I think are just there to help you feel lived in the world. Exactly. Did, did their approach to explaining the world did it distract you like gravity did? I might be using the wrong word, but that's just my recollection. Uh, not really. I kind of passed over a lot of it. Okay. Okay, um, that's good. But the 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 heart the sorry the engine that you're mentioning as kind of like the the MacGuffin space technology that makes all of this story possible. Yeah. It's called the Epstein drive, which I think it's fine that they just tell you about hey there's this drive it makes you go really fast yeah so travel between these places is now possible great um but i wanted to read you this quote and i wanted to know what you think of this yeah go for it it's from the very first page of chapter one Mm -hmm. says then solomon epstein had built his little modified fusion drive popped it on the back of his three-man yacht and turned it on With a good scope, you could still see his ship going at a marginal percentage of the speed of light, heading out into the big empty. (laughs) uh, So the thing that I thought was kind of interesting about this, Mm -hmm. and it might have just been a throwaway line, but I wanted to know what you think about, do you think Solomon Epstein is still out there? (laughs) He's going to come back at some point in this series and become an important figure? I think we might have to talk about the reasons why that is technically possible in the spoiler section. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's fair. But uh, I think that it felt fair. No, not everything is throwaway. There is the as another example of another kind of concept that become that ends up becoming really important um, is protogen. Mm-hmm. As a company gets mentioned kind of offhandedly towards the beginning, 
of the book and mm-hmm. uh and you come to find out that they're like crazy important same with kind of julie mao how mm-hmm. how how she ends up becoming really important the i think it's not crazy but at least so far the only examples that i've seen have been referenced back in the book there's seven mm-hmm. there's seven more books it's possible it's very possible old man epstein turns his ship around crashes itself into earth <laughs> coming to give these kids a whooping <laughs> oh earth and mars need a whooping that's for sure and a whooping they will get it is an example though to me of totally acceptable um techno babble exploit like backstory that was just totally fine with me i was like yeah yep we have we have our special drive it's it, it went off it's kind of cute that he is presumably dead on the ship. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, it's cute. It's a little bit like the uh, Tesla Roadster that Elon Musk shot out into space. I adore the dark humor surrounding that, that they think that people, or that he might have buried a body in it. We would never know. Exactly. Exactly. It's the same thing. <laughs> the Musk drive. Sending his 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 uh victims off endlessly into the void (laughs) so that's Mm. that's interesting do you think that the as far as like your your um perception of the the realism in the book do you think that between this and gravity might have been that you you didn't feel like um leviathan wakes needed to be like to take itself more seriously like because it was it establishes at least fairly early on that it's not hard sci-fi whereas gravity might have been a little bit more hard right i think with leviathan wakes it makes no pretense that it has any bearing on the real world other than like some notions you're familiar with about there's planets there's orbital mechanics mm-hmm. there's thrust we're going to stop there and we're going to ignore it forever gotcha like just these things exist they will be in the plot when they are needed they will not be when they're not whereas i think gravity like the entire movie seemed to revolve around the level of realism of what was happening like and and it doesn't help that it was set in modern day yeah and it's not even like modern day but there's some crazy magic thing that's different about the world it's just this is space today with all the things that are in space today Mm -hmm. and it tries to like make a story out of it that's just wrong so that's i think why it bothered me was like gravity didn't didn't signal to you as a viewer that you should disbelieve how things work in space Mm -hmm. which probably confuses people who don't know how they work in space whereas leviathan wakes is clearly already not trying to be factual gotcha and uh, when we get to the spoiler section, I think, um, we'll, and we go over the, the basic plot of the book, the listeners will realize exactly we'll, at what point we realize, oh, yeah, this is completely like, this is completely yeah. fake, <laughs> or not, or at least yeah. not realistic. Um, so you had some issues with the writing style. Um, 
and of, this is of course not to just keep prodding on about the the, the issues and keeping it negative um, but I do want to know if there were other things that stuck out to you that you wish had been different or you wish had been better uh, I would I would like to recharacterize just a little bit I didn't necessarily have issues with the writing style but there are things that I think you could improve about the writing that would make it a better book so with that being said, like, I don't want it to take a negative face here. I'm not here to just, like, criticize the novel. <laughs> you can brand yourself however you want to. I am here for you. I'm just saying, if I was their editor, <laughs> there were some things that I would have suggested. That's it. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Um, as far as, like, anything else to change about the book... I think that the story was interesting. I think that they didn't spend too much time in places they didn't need to spend time in. Um, I thought it was very, like, good as far as space operas are concerned. Like, there were lots of different powers involved. They were all kind of, you know, going after their own objectives. There were cool power dynamics that I think provide a pretty good ground for stories. Mm -hmm. Um so overall, like I was pretty happy with the general like idea behind the book and and behind the universe that all of this is going on in. Yeah. The one thing that I would change otherwise probably is the character of Naomi. I don't um, disagree with that. So in the book, she is very much and, and then maybe this is the general uh, thing that I would change about the book is it is it's a male perspective yeah through and through and Naomi is kind of written as an object of male affection in the books mm -hmm. whereas they got her so much more right I think in the TV series she is not there to please anybody else oh that's really good um, to hear that's good yeah she's a cool character in the in the show and for reasons that like aren't patronizing yeah she um and, and, and it is important to point out that the authors are directly involved with the TV shows too. So it could be seen as like a, uh, a, a way for them to retcon a little bit of their previous work is, is to make mm -hmm. those changes. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, I don't know that I can speak to Naomi in Caliban's war, but it's possible that they saw the same thing that you did after Leviathan Wakes came out and that it's just Holden mm -hmm. and Miller and um, there's actually four perspectives in Caliban's War, and oh, two wow. of them are female. So okay. that's something that I think they, they might have addressed, or at least it could have been proactive. It might be nice to think that that's it was reassuring. Pro yeah. 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 Well, and the characterization now that I'm thinking about it of Julie Mao was also not that great either. <clears throat> yep. For So... Yeah, I think the female characterization in this book could really use some uh, some attention. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a definite um, advantage to writing series of novels is that you get that feedback mm -hmm. loop, and that's kind of an it. Mm -hmm. I hadn't necessarily thought about that before, but that's kind of it's kind of nice. Maybe we're gonna get the same thing from this podcast. Oh, I'm not listening to the feedback. Oh, okay. So if somebody said, like, kick Riley off, replace him with a girl, they'd be, like, falling on deaf ears? Yeah. I don't want to talk to a girl. Got it. Not even your wife? Uh, Rachel's okay. 
All right. Um, hi, Rachel, if you're listening. Hi, Rachel. Um, the you said actually the 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 main thing that I really liked about the book was was it sounded like something that you liked about it too. It might not have been your main thing, but it was for me, and that is the power dynamics. They were okay. Even if even if they could be somewhat tropey at times, it was mm-hmm. at least really cool to get to uh, get to experience this universe from like the like a a perspective that doesn't know everything. So yeah. you really don't know what Mars is up to, what proto excuse me, what protogen is up to, what the OPA is up to. And mm-hmm. so you get to see kind of in the in the same at the same time scale that the perspectives are written in how the powers of the system are like interacting with each other how yeah. they're rubbing up against each other. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. I like that. I do too. And I think it like worked really well for the detective element of this novel. Mhm. Because Miller, one of the characters, is a detective, and so he's always like trying to piece together puzzles. And because you, as the reader, do not have complete information about what all these different powers are going after, mm-hmm. it's really, I think, a good thing for the for the writing of the mystery because then they've got some freedom to say like, "This is how this works in Mars," and he's figured this out. Um, so that means this logical conclusion over here. Yeah, and they don't they don't really contradict themselves. Mm-hmm. in a lot of that so i thought that was cool i i like to i don't know if you did the same thing but i at times like to think of miller as even though he's flawed he was at least soundly thinking through how everything worked whereas mm-hmm. holden was kind of uh not the opposite but he was flying by the seat of his pants and any time that he came to a conclusion he was like i got it and he would just like yeah he would just he wouldn't necessarily examine it deeply. So we got two different ways of like people reacting to the events around them. Did you see that too? Right. It was the classic idealist versus pragmatist mm-hmm. approach where Miller was the pragmatist. He was doing things that made logical sense and making the best of his situation. Mm-hmm. Whereas Holden was very much an idealist with a strong set of beliefs and took actions regardless of the consequences because they were in line with his beliefs. Oh, yeah, and we can talk about that a little bit uh, after the break. But yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the break, I feel real I feel real gunning to to talk some spoilers. Do you have anything else that you would say about the book before we do that? Uh not so much about the book itself and and maybe this is something I'll even cut um, sure, but this is one of the most expensive books I've ever bought because really? I bought a Kindle to read it on. Oh, okay, that's kind of cool. Which kind of Kindle was it? Uh, just the Paperwhite. Okay. The, does it? Uh, it, is it the backlit one or is it one up that's backlit? Uh, it's it's backlit. Oh, nice, sweet. But I've got the backlit light turned almost all the way off. So did you decide to do that because you saw how big the book was? Or did have you want, been wanting to get a Kindle? It was exactly because I saw how big the book was. <laughs> and I did not want to carry that in my backpack every day. Fair enough. Fair enough. I understand. So. I didn't intend. It had the, 
I didn't intend to force you to get a system. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's not not your fault. It had the nice byproduct though of me realizing that the Kindle is going to be amazing for books that I do not want to have physically. Yeah. Not just because of size, but for various other factors. Mm-hmm. Um, like I like reading, but I hate having books around that I didn't love. Yeah. It always makes me feel sad to read a book and then like mm. just have it sitting on my self shelf and know that I don't care about it and then eventually give it away. Yeah. So I like that the Kindle is kind of a triage system for my opinion. Yeah. Where I can put a book on it, read it, and if I hate it, I never have to invite it into my home. Gotcha. But if you like it, you might even decide to get a, a physical version to like adorn your home. Like if you like it a lot. Precisely. Yeah. Is this uh, also kind of connected to, I can't remember exactly who the author was, but um, in the past I remember you had you had uh, not worked on cleaning your house, but like worked on uh, deciding which items in your apartment needed to stay and which ones didn't. I can't remember exactly what that yep. was called. What was it called? Yeah. That was a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up yeah, by Marie Kondo. That guy. Girl. Yeah. The book was a guy. She was a girl. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. After reading that book, it completely changed my opinion on how I should treat the things that are in my life, mm-hmm. like the physical items that are in my life. Yeah. Um, actually, I also gave that book away. So it was a good book, but it served its purpose. Yeah. The ideas are in your head now. Exactly, I got it. So I don't need it anymore. <clears throat> but yes, this fits very nicely with that idea because now I don't have to keep books that I don't love, mm-hmm. and I've got this device that I do really like mm-hmm. that I can keep around. That's good. I'm glad that you liked uh, that you ended up liking the Kindle too. Was the book was the book a good read on the Kindle? Like, was it was it? I don't know if there's like different. Uh, different fonts or layouts or whatever did they do a good job with it uh yeah no it was fine uh it was really really nice to be able to see like the percentage completion Mm -hmm. that i was gone through the book so i never had to worry about like if i was on track or not yeah um i think there's some way in here for me to like tell how fast i read the book although i don't know where Ah. precisely that is it gives me like a time estimation for how many minutes are left in the chapter that i'm reading Mm -hmm. based on how fast i've read before Uh, okay gotcha Um, yeah and there you can change things like the font size yeah um but no i like it a lot so listeners if you're interested in this book the kindle one is the kindle version is just as good as the physical you might really enjoy it and if you already have a Kindle, the Kindle version is only three dollars. Whoa! Wow. Whereas the physical version, like Daniel said, is a little bit more expensive. I will throw out there that um, I I did get the physical one because I thought the cover looked cool. <laughs> so I That's I at least liked. Uh, I I want to have a full like um, I want to have a full shelf of this entire series if I get through it and I don't hate the later books. I, I like how it looks. Mm. Not so much how it feels. It is giant, but it looks cool. There you have it. So, do we have... Okay, actually, first time out. Do you need to take a break or anything? Uh, It would be nice to take a break. Okay.
I go to the bathroom, get some more water. Okay. I'm going to get some water and eat some Cheez-Its. I'll be right back. Okay. <sighs> Listeners, I'm very excited to bring to you one of today's non-sponsors. Have you ever used an intranet at work that you hate? An internal company website that the search is slow, that the results are bad, that the HR links are poorly formatted, that you can never quite seem to find your way around? Well, if you've ever had that experience, Igloo is here to save you from that pain. Igloo is a service which offers to replace your company's intranet by extraditing you to Siberia and building an igloo for you that you can then live in far, far away from any pesky job-related activities, from any horrible search bars, from any meddling HR representatives. So, if you're tired of your company's intranet and just need a way out, Try Igloo today. Go onto their website, getmeoutofhere.com, and put in the code RES in the promotion box to get 10% off your first flight to Siberia. Thanks to Igloo for not sponsoring the show. Well, Riley, we actually have a really special, not sponsorship this time, but it's actually a corporate announcement from the Belt's most important construction yard, Tyco. Tyco Manufacturing is excited to announce a new construction yard that they are assembling in the orbit around Vesta. This shipyard, codenamed Yahweh, will house Tyco's newest subsidiary that they're calling Get On Yahweh. Get On Yahweh will take over construction of the Nauvoo and all future Mormon transportation throughout human space. Rest assured that this change will do nothing to impact existing projects and will allow for Tyco and Get On Yahweh to focus on the great journey that their patrons are soon to embark upon. Visit their website at sww.get.on. That's sww.get.on for progress pictures and more information. Thanks, Tyco for your announcement and for not sponsoring this episode. So, now we're back. Yeah, how was the uh, bathroom break? I uh, I really enjoyed it. I uh, ate a lot of Cheez-Its. Um, I don't think you, I don't think you heard any of my eating of the Cheez-Its, but I ate a lot of the Cheez-Its. And uh, now I'm re- I'm good to go. Um as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the book starts you off in a solar system at peace but a very fragile piece. And you are dropped into the shoes of James Holden, who is a, he's the second in command of a ice hauler that goes between, I believe, uh, I think it was Saturn, right? It was Saturn's rings. Goes between Saturn's rings back to the asteroid belt where all the people are that need water. And Saturn's rings has tons of water. So they just like grab giant pieces of ice with their ships and they have to bring it back. When uh, his ship, the Canterbury, encounters a distress signal from this ship called the Scopuli, they investigate only to find that it's a trap. And the Canterbury gets destroyed. 
James Holden and a, a small contingent of the crew make it out on uh, the little ship that they went out in to go investigate the crash. But they're being pursued and they're trying to get away from the people that ended up destroying his ship. While this was all happening, James encounters evidence of who might have been the culprits of this. He thinks that it could have been the Martians, and he broadcasts this out to the entire system because he feels that it's important that he lets people know about this. It's important that people are able to make the decision about what to do. That's at least his perspective on it. And mm -hmm. this erupts the system into chaos. Mars gets really defensive, like literally. They put all their weapons and their ships on high alert. And the asteroid belt is furious of this because they think that they were trying to pressure the asteroid belt into meeting some kind of demands that were going to come. Earth tries to play like neutral. They try to stay out of things, but it just really destabilizes everything. There's death everywhere as fighting breaks out sporadically in a, in a system with about 40 to 50 billion people. And that's where we kind of also meet the second character, Miller. He is on Ceres, the largest asteroid or planetoid, depending on who you ask, in the asteroid belt. He's a detective with not their government, but more their contracted security force that's in charge of making sure that Ceres continues to function not necessarily as a safe place for the people who live there, but as a safe place for the assets that investors have there. And he's been on the force for some time. You can tell that he's he's somewhat jaded about everything. But while all of this is going on, he starts to uh, learn about this woman named Julie Mao. She is at first a side project case that he's put on that's like a missing person i think that they actually refer to it as a kidnap job several times the people who don't know where she is want her to be found and brought back to them so it's kind of sketchy there but she ends up becoming more important than you can possibly imagine to the story so we set up james holden we set up uh detective joe miller and their story is how they follow the leads of the destruction of the Canterbury and the missing person case that is Julie Mao. Large big picture, Holden gets away from the people who destroyed the Canterbury, barely, through a series of crazy events, namely the uh, destruction of the flagship of Mars's Jovian fleet, the Donager, which was a cool sequence. Mm -hmm. That's where he gets a hold of his iconic ship, the Rocinante, 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 which is a kind of um, UNSC Infinity style, a little tiny ship inside the Donager, but it still is, you know, powerful and stuff. Um, and from there, he makes contact with the not official government of the asteroid belt yet, but kind of an emerging 
party or an emerging power in the belt. Uh, and he starts to kind of work with them very loosely throughout the rest of the book. From there, he is put on an assignment to go find a person that's important to the OPA who's on another rock in the asteroid belt called Eros. This is where Holden and Miller first meet up, like first their paths cross. Miller had been kind of noticing some strange things happening on series that are loosely at the time, but very concretely connected to who Julie Mao is and where she is. He starts getting like cease and desist from his boss to keep following it. He gets pressure from all over, like like random gangsters not to look into her. And he just can't take it. He's getting obsessed with her. He wants to know what happened and he feels like this weird connection to this person he's never met. And that's what leads him to get cast out of series. And with nowhere else to turn, he tries to figure out what her role might be in all of this. And that leads him to Eros, where he thinks she might be. So Jane, so Holden and Miller are both going to Eros to try to find somebody. Miller thinks it's Julie. Holden thinks that it's an operative of the OPA that he needs to try to get out of there. And they, they come to find out that it is Julie, but not really. She's been infected by something terrible. And she's straight up dead. Like, she is dead. Uh, not resuscitatable. She's, like, covered in this, in this terrible... Uh, ma not material, but, like, matter that's kind of, like like organic but not and it's 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 completely taken her over and it's like growing out of her body yeah it's disgusting and makes me not want to watch the show <laughs> yeah it's a gross scene and they freak out they're like what is going on what's what is all this everything that we know is that that this is completely new nobody has ever seen anything like this in the system before this is either a weapon or something that 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 is now being tested or has been unleashed upon Julie for some reason. While they're on Eros, and they are they are trying to figure out what's going on, larger forces are also working though. And the people who infected Julie, well at least indirectly, simplified, infected Julie, took her body and then conducted the experiment that they always wanted to do, which is they infect the whole moon or the whole rock, like a million people with this disease. And Holden and Miller with their loose alliance are able to barely get out with their lives, kind of. Um, and they make it back to the OPA and they're freaking out. They're like, what's going on? They tell them and they're, the OPA is freaking out. Like, what is this thing? What could possibly be happening? And with some investigation, they find out that through a series of events, this is the responsibility of another organization, a shadowy organization called Protogen. 
they are a security firm based out of Earth, or actually based out of Luna, that has some kind of, at this point, non-discernible ties to to people on Earth, or maybe even the Earth government, who wanted to find out what this thing was, what this infection was. And so they're the people that are found to be responsible for it. Miller, Holden, and some of the Belters go to raid their kind of home base that they get a tip on where it is. And that's another cool fight scene because they have to go in and destroy those same stealth ships that destroyed the Canterbury. And then they also get in there and they get some answers. What the infection is, is it is a other, it's, it's out of this system alien in origin. Its, it's motivation is not completely known, but the speculation is that it was supposed to stunt life's development in the system, but didn't quite make it there. It made it to like a, a moon of Saturn and got stuck in its gravity. And so it was supposed to arrive a lot earlier and just wipe out Earth in the system, or excuse me, wipe out life in the system and just not have us be a threat to whoever designed it. And instead, it just got caught there and just stayed there. And only now was it discovered by Protogen. And they're experimenting with it and seeing what its potential can be. They call this the proto-molecule, which, huh, whatever, protogen. You do you. Yeah, of course they have to brand it. Yeah. And they find out all of this. Miller kills the dude who was telling them this, who was kind of the mastermind. You know, it's a big thing. Everybody goes like, oh, my God, Miller killed the dude. Well, Miller was going to kill a dude. It's just how we were going to see it go. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, so we at least know what's going on here. We know that Eros is overrun by this terrible, terrible proto-molecule of unknown alien origin that seems to just terribly mutilate and kill anything that it gets in contact with. We have to do something about this. So Miller helps the OPA come up with this plan to basically try to destroy Eros with a giant ship. And not just with a giant ship, but by pushing it into the sun. Yes. <laughs> They're going to ram a giant ship into Eros, which is in the asteroid belt, and just get it to be melted into the sun and just evaporated. So that way the protomolecule can't be a danger to anyone anymore. Sounds kind of cool. It would have been really cool. But then the next crazy twist ends up happening while they're executing this final desperate plan. They, they set everything up, and the ship that was supposed to start pushing arrows towards the sun misses. And you're like, what? How does it miss? It's just a straight line. But what you find out is that this protomolecule is more than we thought it is. It has some kind of crazy power that makes it so that way it actually moved Eros out of the way of the ship. Seemingly intelligently. Seemingly without affecting the gravity or the forces at work on Eros itself. By this point, Miller's kind of given up all hope on his life. 
and Holden is in a ship right off, like, kind of protecting Eros. And so Miller's going to try to sacrifice himself by blowing it up. And so, you know, he's, he's on, like, he wants to die. He's kind of had his... There's a bunch of reasons why he wants to die, but he wants to die. <laughs> and so now we're back to those two perspectives. And Miller is on Eros now flying magically at inhuman speeds towards Earth. And Holden is trying desperately to keep up. It's in this last part of the book that they both piece together what's going on there. And they realize that Julie never left Eros. Julie must be the, the intelligence behind Eros moving the way that it does. So Miller, in his like, woe is me, I'm going to sacrifice myself, I'm on Eros thing, goes in and tries to find her. And Holden tries to make it that way. Both Mars and Earth don't utterly obliterate this rock before, well, or try to obliterate this rock before it tries to do something crazier. And ultimately, Miller succeeds. He finds Julie. She's this, like, mangled mess, but now is actually conscious and can actually talk to him. And he he informs her of what he she's actually doing. She's taking this planet to Earth to infect 30 billion people and kill all of them and she doesn't want to do that so she lands on venus which is uninhabited and just starts growing something the presumption is that miller dies during this process or is at least consumed by the proto molecule and holden is our sole protagonist left as the the tensions in the system die down a little bit because protogen is exposed, the protomolecule is exposed, and people know what actually happened now. They know that it wasn't Mars. They know that it wasn't really Earth. They know that something is happening on Venus and that it needs to be carefully watched. And that's kind of where things leave off. You get your resolution and that Miller dies <laughs> and that the immediate threat of the protomolecule is neutralized. And a relative peace, although really shaky, is reestablished in the system. And then we get Caliban's War. But that's another book. That's That title alone <laughs> makes me feel like that's not going to last very long. That peace isn't going to last very long. I think... Uh, um, I'll talk a little bit about Caliban's War maybe at the end because uh, it's it it does it, it does it does start off not immediately afterwards but the events are super influential. Yeah, you don't have to go into anything specific to Caliban's War right now mm -hmm. since that's not what we're talking about. But I think something important to note is that Earth mm -hmm. in the process of trying to get rid of Eros, like their their plan of defense is that they launched every single nuclear missile they had yeah. at Eros while it's flying towards Earth. Yeah. So the fact that Miller was able to convince Julie to take control of this like high mind proto-molecule mm -hmm. and drive Eros into Venus instead leaves Earth completely without a nuclear arsenal. Yeah. 
Super important. So, Super unfortunate for them. <laughs> yeah, very unfortunate. And I think something else to maybe uh, point out as an important piece of the story is that the kind of de facto leader of the OPA, which is the, the asteroid belt mm-hmm. people, he, by the end of the book, is the only person with a sample of the proto-molecule in his possession. Yes, yes. Uh, so he, I think, is going to exploit that for his his power. Mm-hmm. And then Mars, the, there's some stuff that happens to Mars, but basically all of their space fleet was kind of wiped out in a battle. Yeah. And one of their moons was destroyed, which this is how you know it's not hard sci-fi because a moon over Mars got destroyed and we didn't have an entire book like Seven Eves happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So everybody has been crippled in some way after Leviathan wakes. Mm-hmm. And that yep. and that's what allows for them to to come to the talking table and at least be somewhat more peaceful. Maybe try a little diplomacy. I need to tell you, listener, that that was the mega slim version. <laughs> there is many many things in between that help make that make more sense but at least the plot skeleton is there and we can make reference to certain things um and i do want to start really quick by just saying that pretty much everything about the proto molecule had me saying sometimes out loud what the f- Yep. Proto-molecule introduction in my notes. What the f***? Mm-hmm. Arrow dodges a missile. What the f***? Julie Mao is alive? What the f***? <laughs> <laughs> how, how, did you, how did you react to the proto-molecule as a plot device, as a part of the universe? What, what, were, your, what were your thoughts on it? Uh, so kind of like I said at the top of the show, I didn't have as extreme of a reaction because I already remembered that the proto-molecule existed. That's fair. So, it's totally fair. Like, I, I knew reading the book that this was a thing, mm-hmm. but I kind of only remembered it in the context of the second season of the TV show. Like, mm-hmm. I did not remember that it took over Eros. Basically, my memory of the of the TV show goes all the way up to the point where... Um, the Eros experiment happens. So they find Julie, and then the episode where there's an episode all about the unfolding experiment on Eros, where they like trap everybody mm-hmm. in these chambers and then gas them with the proto molecule. Protogen does this. Yeah. And then I slightly remember the raid on the Protogen headquarters afterwards, and then everything else is fuzzy. Mm-hmm. So the the moments where like they pointed the giant ship and Eros dodges it, I was like, I did this did this happen in the show? Like if this happened, how did I forget this? I think that it uh it like literally says something to the effect of uh uh yes, yes, here's the exact passage. Uh, for the Nauvoo to change course at the last minute without falling apart would have been impossible. And so it hadn't happened. 
Eros was roughly 600 cubic kilometers. Before Protogen, it had housed the second largest active port in the belt. And without so much as overcoming the grip of Miller's magnetic boots, Eros Station had dodged. I thought it was hilarious they used the word dodged. Because it, mm-hmm. it was, they were trying to like really run home that like, this is, this is spooky. This is really unnatural. They didn't, mm-hmm. this isn't like man-made. And yeah. then, and then the very next chapter, holy shit, said Amos <laughs> in a flat voice. Jim, <laughs> Naomi said to Holden's back, but he waved her off and opened a channel to Alex in the cockpit. Alex, did we just see what my sensors say we saw? <laughs> holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely like that watching the show. The proto molecule is spooky stuff. Yeah. Um super creepy. So I liked it as a plot device. I thought it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think even in the book they go into more detail about it than they did in the show, which mm-hmm. I really liked. Mm-hmm. But they talked about how uh it was sent to the solar system a long time ago and specifically meant to target um single-celled organisms Mm -hmm. and kill them or at least like make them part of the protomolecule hive mind and so the fact that it was interacting with multicellular organisms was something it was not designed to do yeah and that that protogen was trying to exploit it to like make like take the next step in humanity's evolution Mm -hmm. um so i think it was a really creative way to kind of introduce maybe a hive mind like plot device that on one hand is scary and of extraterrestrial origin and like extra solar system origin uh, that could mean really bad news but on the other hand could be and they make a compelling case for uh, the thing that is going to take humanity to the next step yeah yeah it was it, there were there were several different things that the protomolecule did for for different people like for the aliens, it was their device. For Protogen, it was their salvation. For everybody else, it was just terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was utterly useless and just killed a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And I also liked that the proto molecule what well, it didn't work. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes the aliens at least at the very least somebody who who didn't plan enough to make it work the first time. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think about um, the the leader of Protogen? He kind of gives this whole speech about this molecule, mm-hmm. you know, is the way to get to humanity's next step in the in the evolutionary ladder. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whatever casualties we incurred on Eros were just part of that experiment and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, history will, will kind of whitewash that. Miller kills that guy on the spot. Yeah, which... What uh, do you think of that whole thing? Uh, the guy's name was Dresden, I think. Which yeah. I, I thought that was kind of cute. Um, it's it's potentially a reference to uh, the the German city of Dresden. Like the, the mass destruction that was, that was done to it during World War II kind of was mirrored mm. a little bit in the mass destruction of arrows. Mm-hmm. So that's cute. Um, he was a little bit cookie cut, not cookie cutter, but like predictably like major psychopathic, sociopathic evil. Yeah. Um, I understand the desire to try to elevate humanity 
And I know that in a world that's like ours, but 300 years more, who's to say that it's not still run by psychopaths, but psychopaths that have secret companies and secret space stations and infinite money and infinite resources that could kill millions of people if they did the calculations and thought that it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Put in that context, I can see why it fits. It did still feel like as, as a reader in my time that it was a little bit like, I was just kind of like evil. Um, I also just find it really hard to empathize with, with somebody who thinks that killing people is, is okay. So Mm -hmm. I, I thought that (laughs) ironically, I thought it was awesome when Miller killed him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Holden loses his mind. Like he goes, he, yeah. he's like, but we were so close to finding out information, which that's kind of Holden's thing. The entire book is like, I need to know the information, but Miller's like, I need to do what's right or what he perceives as right. So it was a cool moment. Uh, I, I guess predictably Fred, the guy who was in charge of the OPA didn't react maybe as strongly as, would have been fun to have him react as, but you know, mm-hmm. I got the reaction so, from Holden that I wanted. Okay. So you didn't buy the argument at all. Like you didn't, you weren't convinced about the proto molecule being so important that it was worth experimenting with human life. Uh, like if, if I were in this, if I were like put in that time period and had to like vote for a guy who was going to do something like that or not do something like that, I wouldn't vote for that guy. I, I don't I don't subscribe to I don't like to kill people except for mm. that guy. So something that's I think interesting to point out here is that he had uh, presumably done this to himself, but definitely to all of the scientists working in the protogen lab. Yes, you already used the proto molecule to change their, I guess, morality. Yes. He made them basically all sociopaths. Who thought it was okay to experiment on people? And it was, and that was a, one of the cool times where they where they showed you instead of told you um, mm-hmm. at the beginning, like when you first encountered that, because uh, they, I remember the the raiders of the of the space station, the OPA, they noticed that like none of the guards have actual guns; they have non lethal weapons. Mm-hmm. And they they noticed that really quickly because the guards suck and they like <laughs> they die very quickly. Um, right and then we kind of get inklings of why that is because some of the scientists start attacking them and then when we get the explanation it's like oh that makes sense that they they have that because the guards are not there to protect the station they're there to subdue the psychopathic scientists yeah that was pretty cool that was cool now i did i did think that the the fact that the scientists in Dresden had probably changed themselves with the proto molecule, I maybe like only half caught that. Um, I see in hindsight what you're talking about, though, that like they did at least mm-hmm. prove that it worked. Maybe they just needed mm-hmm. more data or something. Mm-hmm. I just got the impression listening to Dresden and and. Uh, Holden talk back and forth that Dresden knew he was killing all those people when he did it. Like he, he knew that the proto molecule wasn't gonna, wasn't going to transform them into 
like sociopath or psychopathic scientist beings like they had been. I think he knew that they were going to die. That's an interesting point, though, is that arguably they didn't die. Yeah. Um, do you think that Dresden knew at the onset that they didn't die? Or do you think that he was willing to take the chance that they would all die? So just to, just to be clear, um, the, the reason that you say that they might not have died, and I, I, can, I can see this too, is because they might have done the same thing that happened to Julie, where they just kind of joined into some unknown force together, right? So, uh, yeah, and it's not, I don't think there's anything special about Julie yeah. uh, in terms of how the proto-molecule impacted her. I think it points out in the book that Julie is actually part of a larger consciousness yeah. when she's in this proto-molecule. Like, there's, there's other people, everybody who is on that station has kind of formed into one uh, station-wide consciousness. To me... I view that as as equivalent to death. Mm. Um, and I, I I don't know if this is supposed to be like a like a collectivist versus a, um what's the well how would you say the opposite of collectivist individual individualist individualist um, I, I don't know if it's supposed to be like a, an analog for that like mm-hmm. those kinds of societies. Um, I'm just like super individualist, I guess. So mm. seeing that still, even in this hypothetical context, makes me think that those guys dead. They super dead <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because they don't. Well, one, there's there's very gruesome explanations for like how their bodies get get mutilated and torn apart and all that kind of thing, which which visually tells me death. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I just don't really consider like Borg type hive minds to be a way to live i think that's really mm-hmm. because it's 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 so constraining even physically mm-hmm. it's almost like you're just returning to to dust like dust on like dust to dust but mm-hmm. you're still conscious a little bit but not really it likes it like super screams to me that like their lives are over if they're still alive, then they're not the same person. They're not the same thing. Whatever was, was dead. Right. And it's kind of not their choice that that happened to them. So it's equivalent to murder. Kind of, yeah. 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 No, I think it's, I think the whole Dresden thing kind of reads as a, a I don't know, a more extreme version of eugenics. A little bit, yeah. It's like a genetically super engineered version of the eugenics argument about how people uh, there there's this argument in history mm-hmm. where people thought that they could control the gene pool to like basically breed better humans. <laughs> this is kind of that thing applied in a more sci-fi setting. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think we've pretty well determined that eugenics is not great. Yeah. in the real yeah. world uh, so it's no surprise I think that there's some hesitation when applying it to the sci-fi world mm-hmm. as well what do you think about this idea of there being a next step like evolutionarily for, for humans I think that there are ways to make it definitely less frightening 
Um, <sighs> Do you think that it exists? Oh, I guess in, in real life? Um, mm-hmm. There could be a version of that through, like, cyborg stuff, you know? Um, okay. I haven't ever really been convinced that somehow you can move whatever consciousness is out of a like our body into either another body or a computer or a hive mind and it still be living or it still be mm-hmm. the same thing. I haven't necessarily been convinced of that in my life. Hmm. So for you, like the next step in human evolution would be to divorce the consciousness from the body. Uh, I think that is one way to do it. A way to do it, uh, a direction to go that still preserves the self, at least the way that I perceive it, is is to just add on rather than move the the consciousness through like cyborg stuff. Right. I think that the cyborg stuff might be slightly more realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, we we legit have some cyborgs now. Like there's there's people with extra extra enhancements because they didn't have an arm now they have an arm didn't have an eye now they have an arm right right is is that something that that you do you think that they could make moving consciousness or 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 completely transforming the the human being like that work is that realistic to you Mm, maybe someday i don't as as formulated i think by the whole notion of like a step function change in humanity's existence Mm -hmm. like i don't think that there's going to be an evolutionary leap Mm -hmm. that that causes us to suddenly become different creatures i think it's going to happen very slowly over time uh and probably in like an additive process like you're describing it doesn't really make sense to me to think about a next step in human evolution because it's almost like whatever that next step would be is almost by definition no longer human. Yeah. Can I? So I always think it's a an interesting idea whenever it comes up in sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Can I spoil um, uh, Interstellar to talk a little bit about how they do it, or should we leave that alone? It's is it okay to spoil Interstellar? Daniel's about to spoil Interstellar. If you don't want to hear the spoilers, then skip ahead by two minutes from where you are right now. Spoiling it in three, two, one. So the whole reveal that the the beings that um, that were helping Matthew McConaughey basically do everything um, were just mm-hmm. future people. Yep. I, I feel like, th- does that fit in with the whole, like, they've just evolved so far that now they're not even human and they're, like, tran- like they're outside of time type thing? Is that is that kind of what you're referring to? Like, that same idea, or is it something else? Yeah, I guess I'm referring to the notion that, like, whatever, whatever humans become in the future, we won't probably even recognize as human anymore. Like the people of the future, the things that we are turning into will look back at us the same way we look back at like primitive humans or Neanderthals or even maybe chimpanzees, I think. Gotcha. Um, As far as like, that's, that's naturalistic evolution. Mm -hmm. 
but I think like the things at the end of Interstellar are just as far removed from whatever humans are today as we are from whatever chimpanzees are. Gotcha. Right. And that's actually kind of a natural, that's, that's still kind of like a natural idea. I mean, they, they probably got there through like scientific progress and stuff, but they, they didn't necessarily mm-hmm. try to do the same thing that Dresden was doing with, uh, with the proto molecule. Right. Cause that was a very active thing by an individual not so much like a natural byproduct of scientific progress or even like basic evolution. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that's good to point out is that anytime I see like an individual event or an individual person think that they can, can, I don't know, bring about this revolutionary change in, in let's say humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that premise is almost always just completely rejectable because of how humans work. Like Mm -hmm. there's no way that you could just change things in a generation or, or even over time, like very quickly. Um, And I think with some of the gene editing stuff that's going on, you know, in the real world, Mm -hmm. we're, we're starting to get into some spooky territory, but I think that that is going to be pretty tightly controlled. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know, just an interesting idea to, to think about. Unfortunately for everyone on Arrows, <laughs> Protogen yeah. did not have the proper controls. <laughs> no, they don't seem to be interested in morals. Did, just a quick side thing about Protogen. And I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that I thought that Dresden was a little bit too caricaturedly evil. Yep. And you were asking me if I could even empathize with that. Can you empathize with with their approach? Since I feel like we both we both are open to the idea of of moving forward as a species. Would you be willing to move forward with protogen? Uh n- no. The reason why I think I was asking was that that is Miller's entire justification for killing dresden Mm -hmm. is that he says that he was starting to get convinced and that he could see that everybody else was starting to get convinced by this guy's silver tongue yeah um and so that made it kind of hard for me to buy the motivation that he killed him because he started to think like maybe this is a good idea Mm. i like later on when they go back and they get a little bit more subtle about the guy had a lot of money a lot of influence a lot of power Mm -hmm he would have wormed his way out of justice mm-hmm. and then gone back to doing whatever he was doing. I think that's a much better justification for Miller to bring the ax down on yeah. him rather than to be like, he was scaring me because I'm a sociopath secretly. I I will say that, yes, it was a better explanation. I kind of interpreted it in the moment more as like, that was just Miller snapping and it wasn't necessarily thoughtful Miller that we were used to. And that was supposed to be like a significant point. Like it was supposed to be like mm, maybe. a moment. Yeah, that's fair. So you felt as though because the protogen was cartoonishly evil, it it, it wouldn't you, you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't be able to like vote for that guy if he was running for something. You wouldn't do that. Not unless he turned me into a sociopath. <laughs> oh, like if he got you doused in the in the juices? 
Yeah, if he did whatever to me that he did to those scientists, then you know, who knows? Was there anything that like that the authors could have done to maybe make that message less like like or at least easier to swallow? Or were they were were they was Protogen written in to be a force and less like more of a force and less of a character? Um, it's a good question. I think it was probably more more of just like a a tool mm-hmm. than a specific like entity to rationalize about. I think that uh, the proto molecule is not going away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So I think that the initial reaction of like disgust towards it is probably an intended one mm-hmm. by the authors, right? Because it does do like horrible mutilations to people's bodies and and mm-hmm. like you said, essentially kills them, mm-hmm. even if their consciousness is floating around in some soup afterwards. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what the proto molecule turns into over the course of the series, and maybe it's going to become one of those things that by the end, you're actually okay with it, mm-hmm. just like Dresden predicted. Oh man, oh that'd be spoopy. I don't like yeah. it. <laughs> um, without saying anything about what you might know, did did this did the show get farther than Leviathan Wakes, and did it? talk about what happens with the proto-molecule? In the first season? Uh, or in the second season or the third? Because it's got three seasons out on mm-hmm. TV yeah. and a fourth being made. I don't know if the seasons map directly to books or not, so I I, I didn't know if like season one even mm-hmm. went into Caliban's War or beyond and talked more about like, um, like does the proto-molecule stick around and like does it does it do what you're what you're talking about like does it does it stay relevant no season one's pretty much an exact mapping to the first book with some additional things going on in there so like you were saying i think there was stuff that was lifted from the second book that got put back into the first season Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as i think holden and miller are concerned their story in the first book is exactly the same as the story in the first season gotcha gotcha okay okay the uh uh, going back to the TV show and what they lifted from Caliban's War, Christian Avasarla. Mm-hmm. The who's that? She is the the big politician lady on Earth. Oh yeah. Did, were you expecting her to be there when it when you started reading it, and when did you realize she wasn't going to be there? <laughs> uh yeah, I was expecting her to be there i think i realized it on the third chapter Mm -hmm. when the first one was titled holden and then the second one was titled miller and then the third was titled holden like okay gotcha so you were like "Uh oh well something something happened there (laughs) yeah i was i was interested to see what was going to be different if anything Mm -hmm. uh but the way that the book is written like you're saying, you don't know what's going on on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the TV show, like they added all that stuff in to kind of, I think, help explain mm-hmm. some things that they couldn't explain otherwise. Yeah. But it's fine if it's missing. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't, you don't lose anything. My little brother, whenever I was talking to him a little bit about Leviathan Wakes, um, he he was he was like 
blown away that she wasn't even in it. She he was like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, she's so important, and I don't really know why she's she's so important yet. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I I did know watching the first episode that like, okay, she's she's high up, she's doing some crazy stuff. I need yeah. to remember this, and then radio silence on her character. <laughs> right. She is important, mm-hmm. but it's just not important to the essential story that Holden and Miller are going through at the moment. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Good to know. So the OPA. How did you were you were talking about Protogen and and their not necessarily message, but like Mm-hmm. Are you rooting for the OPA? Are you wanting for them to actually get themselves established and like an actual government in place in the belt? Or do you feel like they're gangsters who have gotten themselves in over their head? Mm. I really like the OPA. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily from like a a platform perspective, Mm -hmm. but more from I like what the book does with the OPA. I like how it, it really paints it as kind of a shades of gray thing that there mm-hmm. are it's it's not one cohesive entity it's a lot of people kind of coming up together under the same banner but that have different ideologies that have different goals mm-hmm. um, and so there are sections of the OPA that are way more respectable and there are sections of the OPA that are just like you're saying gangsters or murderers that are using the OPA name to get away with whatever they're trying to get away with um, I too I too really liked that. I liked the grays. Yeah. So I hope that one day, you know, it would be cool to see the OPA stabilize and mm-hmm. turn into like its own force in the belt. I don't think that'll ever happen. Oh, okay. So you think that this this isn't a happy book. <laughs> so they might not ever get to be stable. They might be the punching bags of the soul system throughout the series i think that for as long as they are decentralized in the way that they are they can't be unified i think it would take them having to move to a single gravitational body for them Mm -hmm. to become a power like an earth or like a mars where it's Mm -hmm. very clear to say like this is our space don't come Mm -hmm. in it like these are all the rules that we're going to live by whereas with living in the asteroid belt every single asteroid's kind of different and they're all spread apart and there's not really a good way to like keep a cohesive uh control over all of them so i think just like by structural limitation the opa is mm-hmm. not going to become anything more defined not necessarily like a good or bad thing or a happy or a sad thing gotcha so did you have this same conspiracy theory that I was starting to form towards the end about them, though. What's your conspiracy theory? That they're, like, part of one of the two governments already? Okay, that, that's, that, that would be pretty that would be pretty cool for it to pop up. Um, I was actually, though, thinking about how every now and again, we would get little, like windows into what julie was doing Mm -hmm. and i might have missed some details but towards the end i started to see like like i started to put all the yarn and the pictures on the big board and i was like what does this mean 
And I have this suspicion that she was actually doing everything with the proto-molecule by order of the OPA. Mm -hmm. And that they were not opposed to the Eros incident happening. Mm. Or were active in making it happen. Mm -hmm. Did... Is that is is that some is that like a, a thing that you felt as well or or did I miss like details that that explained more about what her mission was? No, I didn't I didn't think that, but I don't think you're wrong. Like that would make mm. a lot of sense because they also talk about throughout the book uh how how much the OPA and really all of the belters feel mm -hmm. that they're already not like human anymore um mm -hmm. how how separate they feel from people who are from earth or from mars who have grown up in a gravitational environment with all the comforts of an atmosphere and blah 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 you know, they speak their own language they're very much like a people who don't fit in anywhere so it wouldn't surprise yeah. me if they were also people who were more willing to try an experiment that would give them uh uh a step ahead of the competition that i feel like is at least one of the the shining parts of the book mm -hmm. is that that was something that didn't ever get explicitly said it mm -hmm. might not even be true but we at least have some of the hooks to to see where that would be plausible mm -hmm. like they did a good job with that part of the universe to me yeah I I really hope that they that they weren't involved. Fred is kind of a shady dude sometimes, so mm -hmm. maybe. Um, I part of like the optimist in me though is like, man, why can't the Belters just have their own thing? Right. <laughs> poor guys. I mean, poor guys, poor Mormons. Oh yes, I have this on my notes here as well. So can you explain to the readers just the high level, because uh, it, was, it wasn't in the overview, what the Mormons were doing in space? Yeah, so I'll explain to the listeners. You call them readers, but maybe they're reading the book. If you're reading the book, you already know. <laughs> uh, so the Mormons are in space building a ship which will take all of the Mormons somewhere else. And it's a big ship, and they're calling it a generation ship because it's going to take many generations for them to get wherever they're going. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's out of the solar system is where they're trying to go. So that way, I guess they can have their own Mormon planets somewhere away from Earth. Mm -hmm. um, they don't really dive into it that much in the book, mm -hmm. but it is kind of interesting... I think how that lines up with some Mormon theology about mm -hmm. what happens after you die and, you know, like the, the quality of your life, whether or not you're a very godly person determines like things like if you'll get your own planet after death. It makes me wonder if maybe the Mormons in the universe of the of Leviathan Wakes are trying to get a jump start on that. I loved that little connection to the whole get your planet thing. Mm -hmm. I loved it. <laughs> it's part i have uh i have a, a a few mormons that i see every day mm -hmm. uh and so it's it's 
it was just really entertaining to like flip through the pages and I look up and I'm like, you guys are going to get to go on that ship. <laughs> They're not going to get to go in it. They'll be dead. Yeah, but in reality, um, the, the ship that I was talking about in the uh, in the summary, that's their generation ship and the OPA steal it from them. Right. And so I, d- I couldn't help but feel a little bad for them. Like, oh, damn, the Mormons, they're really rich, but... <laughs> All their money goes to waste. <laughs> yep. The like the entire pride and joy of all of the Mormons gets mm-hmm. hurled at a rock, which then <laughs> dodges the ship, and then we never hear about the ship again. Ostensibly it flew into the sun. Yeah, that was my interpretation as well, is that the is that the Navu is toast. <laughs> which is that's sad. They at least took the time to check the entire ship to make sure no Mormons were on it still. That were like hiding and like praying and right, stuff. Right, right. I thought that was nice. Yeah, you know, you don't want to unnecessarily send the Mormons to their demise. In the sun. In the sun. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, the one last thing that I felt like was really big about the book, or was like a really big part of the book, that I wanted to get your take on, is the, the dialogue that Holden and Miller have at several points during the book about information and what the right thing to do with that, with information is. Mm -hmm. So what, what I think about it or. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to formulate a question, but yeah, uh, that's basically the question. (laughs) Continue, continue formulating your question. Sorry. What did you think about it? <laughs> oh man, fell for that one. Uh, <laughs> you just had a better way of phrasing it. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I thought that it was a good point of tension between the two characters. Mm-hmm. Miller was more a fan of keeping things a secret and, and only sharing information with people that absolutely need to know that information. Holden is very much more. Everybody should know all of the information because if there are no secrets, then nobody can hide. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a middle ground, and I think that's what their their differences are meant to illustrate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably true on some level that most information should be shared in public, mm-hmm. and then there are things that are intimately private that need to be kept secret between Mm -hmm. you and whoever else it is that you're keeping a secret with or even just yourself Mm -hmm. so i think i think both have their their merits to their arguments i liked how much of a clear cut distinction it is between like i said before somebody who's pragmatic in miller who's just trying to get the job done and somebody who's more idealistic like holden who doesn't really Mm -hmm. know what the goal is but mm-hmm. has a set of beliefs that they're going to operate by. Yeah. Did you feel that um, that one of them was easier to listen to than the other? I think that Miller's is probably the more sympathetic point of view in my mm-hmm. from from my reading. I could see how people would read Holden's as more sympathetic. I think Holden's is just more naive. Um, and I think that they call that out in the book, like Holden tells mm-hmm. Miller, like you're, you know, you're not nuanced. You're just an asshole. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. But I do think that Miller's point of view is is a little bit more appropriate in most cases. Now, that is kind of contrasted with the fact that in the book, Holden leaks information twice to the to the solar system about something that could have been kept secret. And then the third time when he has the opportunity to do that and is stopped and doesn't, the information gets <laughs> out anyway. So oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. It's like it's one of those it's going to happen. So if you really believe in it, might as well do it arguments. I, I could see that as being mm-hmm. persuasive to some people. That to me is more of a tragedy of the commons type argument, though, that mm-hmm. as long as everybody believes that you shouldn't, it wouldn't happen. So, Gotcha. I, I too, also thought that at least as written, Miller's, Miller's perspective was easier to get behind. Mm-hmm. And the entire reason I say that is because I kid you not, the second time that that Holden was was got found out something, I can't even remember what it was at this point. It's just like blind rage mm-hmm. in my head. <laughs> um, I I couldn't help but picture like like uh, I don't remember the context of the meme, but the, a meme where um, like somebody gets a hold of something and then they're like and then it cuts away to the person that gave it to them. And then they're like, now be careful with that. Don't do. And then you go back and he's already pushed the nuclear launch code button. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't help, but feel like that. Wah, wah type thing. <laughs> like, oh man, Holden. I'm usually a, such an idealist, but last time you did this, you very clearly started like world war three. Right. In the solar system. Right. It felt like, oh man, here he goes again. Whereas Miller, at least, like the time, like he, he at least every time was like, we got to think this through. Don't do anything stupid. And then he, we cut back to Holden, and he's done something stupid. But to be fair, so, Holden, mm-hmm. Holden does have a defensible position where he says, like, all of the things that I've said are factually true. He doesn't do things that are like misleading. He's not spreading fake news. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. He's just being rash and like spreading news that doesn't need to be spread. It's like, yes, what you said was true, but it's also not something people should hear right now. Because in the first instance, it's it, it ignites the conflict between the OPA and Mars. Yeah. And then in the second instance, it ignites the conflict between Earth and Mars. Yeah. Both of which kills thousands of people. And like, it's, it's a real weight. Like, it's a real yeah. thing that he has to live with. And his character, yeah. I mean, his character is a little bit like of a swashbuckler, so he'll go, yeah, guys, whatever. But like... <laughs> right, yeah, he doesn't really seem to bear any of that stress. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, shortly after, I think the second time that happens, he's a little upset, and then he gets laid. And so yeah. kind of goes away. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's, <laughs> I, I didn't ever think about it in that sequence, but you're absolutely right. So... And I can't, like, the one thing that I, (laughs) that the show did that really uh, stuck with me throughout this book was Mm -hmm. the the casting choice for Miller, or not for Miller, sorry. He was good. Yeah. The guy that they got to play Holden, I cannot get out of my head, and I wish I could, because he is always, he always looks like he's on the verge of tears. Yes, he does, yeah. And so as I'm reading this book, I'm constantly imagining like this bratty guy who's always like just about to cry if he doesn't get his way. Oh my God. There's a, 
there's a sequence in Caliban's War where um, Holden and Amos and Naomi, who we do, we haven't talked much about Alex, Naomi, and and Amos. We'll come back to them. Um, they're trying to get into uh, a a war zone, basically. Yeah. And Holden has grown a beard to try to disguise himself, but oh, no. he's he. It apparently doesn't look super great next to uh-huh. Amos's beard. And then whenever uh-huh. they're getting their ship is getting searched, Holden is like so nervous and Amos just like has to do like crazy pirate shit to make it so that way they don't get caught and shot basically and he's like right you're afterwards Amos is like you're freaking me out captain yeah <laughs> he's just that kind of like he's just that kind of guy yeah um oh man we've we've gone so long in this episode but we only just now have talked about Amos Alex and and Naomi uh, yeah I hesitate to keep going, but uh, in in 140 characters or less, what do you think? <laughs> uh, they were good supporting characters, uh, better in the show. Better in the show? That's good yep. to hear. Every single one of them was better in the show. I loved imagining uh, Alex, who's like an in, of Indian descent with a Texan accent. Mm-hmm. So I, I would love to see how that goes in the show. Um, and Amos, I've actually seen the the actor for Amos and mm-hmm. he doesn't look nearly as like giant as I pictured him in the book. So we'll mm-hmm. have to, I'll have to watch it to see if his character shines through, but like, yeah. I just didn't picture that guy. If that makes in sense. In the show, they play up the sociopath side of him way gotcha. more. Gotcha. He's super interesting in the show. That's good. That's really and good. And then Naomi is also way better. Cause she's like much more driven. Mm-hmm. She's got her own characterization. She doesn't suck up to, holding all the time like mm-hmm. she's just she's very capable far better in the show than she is in the book yeah okay so i like the supporting cast that's really good to hear okay cool uh like you said we have been yeah going through the expanse and there's there's a lot more to cover about leviathan wakes but yeah. i think it's all best left said for maybe another time absolutely final thoughts what do you think uh absolutely average sci-fi easy great read cool universe interesting characters four out of seven on the daniel scale nice i totally agree about the universe and some of the characters i found it to be maybe perhaps on average, uh, more enjoyable. Like I would rate it more like a five or six, probably closer to a five. I want to see where the universe goes and then maybe they'll get sixes and sevens. Ooh. Yeah. Conservative. It was a great introduction. It didn't offend. The only thing that offended me was how I was picturing the protomolecule, protomolecule gore, basically. Oh, yeah, it's gross. Yeah. Awesome. I'm really glad that you read it and uh, and that you got to experience it. And this was something that was that was pretty uh, pretty like in the now. It wasn't like I read it like mm-hmm. ten years ago or something. Like I was reading this and got excited about it. And so mm. yeah. it's it's cool to get to share a little bit of that excitement with you in the moment. So that was cool. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it was a great pick. Do you want to decide our fate? I will let. The dice, well, really, in this case, the die, decide our fate for us. Cool. So, 
because we've done a book, mm-hmm. the three other categories that we will be picking from will be movies, TV, or games. I've got a six-sided die here. If I roll a one or a two, we'll do a movie. Three or a four, we'll do a game. Five or six TV series. Let her rip. It's happened. It did? It's, it's finally happened. I can't wait to have absolutely no time in my life. Are you ready for this? I'm ready for something. So I have rolled a five. Yeah. Which means that we're going to do a TV show. Yeah. Now, the way that we're going to do this is I'm going to pick a season of a TV show for us to watch, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, a pretty comparable amount of time to how long it took us to read this book. You could probably watch a TV series in the same amount of time. Um, So we're not going to watch the entire show start to end. But I have to make you dance a little bit first. What do you think? It's gotta be uh, Blade Runner 2049. How do you always know? <laughs> You've guessed it every single time. <laughs> um, so, I think a reasonable guess, but you might not go for this, is Westworld. Because you've asked me to watch that before. Okay. I can throw out some other ones, though. No, it's a good guess. That's a good guess. We'll stop there. Oh, okay. Uh, it's not Westworld. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to oh. make you watch uh, a TV series you've probably never seen before. Uh, oh. You've never really experienced anything related to it. We're going to watch The Expanse. No, I'm kidding. We're not going <laughs> to. <laughs> the one thing I told myself I didn't want to do after reading the book. Because <laughs> I liked the book so much that I wanted to We're keep not going to do that. Oh, thank God. No, the show that we're actually going to watch is a show that's been recommended to me a few times Mm -hmm. that I'm really interested in because not only does it sound like a good show, but it's a show that you and I both have some academic training in this field. And that show is Mr. Robot, season one. Ooh, okay, Mr. Robot. It's it's got that that, that dude who's going to play Freddie Mercury in it, I think, right? I have no idea who's in it. I have really no idea what it's about other than it's about like computer hackers, which we are not computer hackers, but we can understand computer things. Um, And it's people that I trust have told me it's very good. So that's about exactly all the information I ever want to know about something before I try it out. Nice. Which is exciting. That's, That's pretty much the extent of what I know too. So we'll both dive in together. It'll be kind of like gravity. Just reckless abandon. I am very ready. I have been wanting to do a TV show for so long. (laughs) Yeah, it's been only six episodes. That is factual. (laughs) So, we've finally done it. We're finally going to do TV. You know, if we didn't change the the selection method, we could have just probably never done TV, ever. We would have gotten another book, I swear. It would have been books every time. (laughs) Which is the one that I'm so ill-equipped to actually make recommendations for. (laughs) But But that you've chosen 
at two. least pretty good stuff two times. And those are the only things that you finished that weren't gravity. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see how Mr. Robot goes then. I, I feel I feel okay about it because I think that at least like I can like I can at least watch it and it's not dependent on me accomplishing something. It's true. It's going to play itself. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. We're getting to gear ourselves up for Mr. Robot. Thank you, Riley, for joining me on this episode and talking about Leviathan Wakes and geeking out for a bit. It was an awesome time. Uh, As always, thanks thanks for making the time to do this. And thank you listeners for joining us for the past however many hours this turned out to be uh, if you have any feedback whatsoever about this episode or any of our previous episodes make sure to go to our subreddit mm-hmm. at rescast.reddit.com and just drop a comment in this episode's thread even if it's just to say hi please say hi we're very lonely <laughs> awesome Cool. Thanks. Bye.